All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 57 of the KISS FAQ podcast. I'm Julian Gill, one of your hosts. Joining me today, Lonnie St. Louis KISS. What's up? Marcus Almighty. Hello. And 69th Blizzard, Ken. Welcome back, gentlemen. It is good to see hey. you all. Now, before Thanks, we before we get into the, today's topic, I was going to actually shoot a separate video for uh, an Odyssey book update, but I decided not to. So here's a quick show and tell for those of you who are not watching this. This won't mean a thing. But <laughs> this is the comparison of two galleys. I had a new one printed up on Paul's birthday. And uh-huh. the book has grown substantially since that previous September one. We're now pushing 500 pages in there. And I believe Tim's doing an interview today. I'm doing one later today. You know, we're wrapping up the final pieces of that puzzle. And I'll tell you, it's uh, a real fun little quest right now. We feel like we're part of the Elder. Each one of us Ooh. are the boy wondering who steers the ship through the stormy sea. So, <laughs> Where's your sword? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sword actually, uh, I don't know if you've seen that on uh, Facebook, is uh, now an ad. I, I loved it when uh, Tim came oh, up yeah. for that design. Yeah, so I, cool. I, saw that. I, I just cool. boosted that one to try and get the word out. All right, let's get back to real stuff <laughs> now. Um, today's topic, and i, I got to actually look it up because I am so unprepared today. All right, it's... Uh, best and Possible Co-Writers. Yep, who was the band's best co-writer, and should the band consider writing a new album? Should they ever consider writing with someone else? I I know Paul has often joked, if anyone sees Desmond Child coming anywhere near the studio, put a sniper on top, you know. Um, I think that was Hot in the Shade era that he was really kind of against Desmond, poor Desmond. But we we won't start there. I mean, let's start start in the beginning. Um, First three albums, they don't have any co-writers. Steve Cornell, of course, gets two credits, but that, does that stuff really count? Because that's pre-Kiss material. Do you, really. consi- do you consider him a co-writer, Lonnie? Not really. I think that, I, I mean, I guess if you want to be, you know, technical about it, yeah, he's a co-writer, but, you know, that that is that pre-Kiss stuff, and, I, th- you know, um, I can I still consider those Gene and Paul songs more than more than anything else, but... Technically, yeah, he's a co-writer, you know, the Wicked Lester type stuff. But I don't know. To me, those are just songs that blend in off those three original Kiss albums just as, you know, in-house type tunes. What about you guys? Ken. Well, <laughs> go ahead, Ken. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, Cornell um, obviously had a little bit of a, a good uh, writing uh Thing going on there, there with Gene, um, and was able to come up with some little maybe cool riffs. Um, you know, so I, I, I like that. You know, um, who knows what else they could have written together or what they did write together that were you know pretty good songs. Um, maybe maybe that was it. Um, but uh, you know, I guess Gene would never went back to revisit that. Um, though Gene mostly wrote by himself the majority of the time, at least through the seventies. So, um, but, uh, you know, I'm okay with the Cornell thing. I mean, they're off the classic album, so they're, they're cool. Mark? Well, 
I think that uh, as far as the writing goes, I think that obviously he did write with them, but you know, I think that when they wanted to move forward and go on with the new thing, I think the only reason why they even mentioned him is because just for legal reasons. I mean, obviously he probably did write with them, but I, I think that he they just wanted to move forward and they just put him on there just strictly because of the fact that they wanted to use that material, just covering their butts, so to speak. They put him on as songwriting credit. Yeah, I, I did an interview with Steve once. Um, I, actually, it was uh, the feeling out to do an interview that we never got around to for some odd reason when he ran into some challenges in his life. Um, and and he gave me the backstory of She, and it, it he's definitely owns a lot of that song, a lot more than you'd actually think. Um, and I can't remember if it's been published or, or, or what, and I don't think I was actually, you know, I can't go into the the details on that. I think I agreed not to, you know, go into the specifics of where he actually features in there. So, yeah, I'm kind of mixed. They're, they were part of Wicked Lester. They were part of, you know, kind of the transition. They weren't co-written specifically for those albums. They were just reaching into the bag of we need material now. So I don't really consider yeah. those co-writes from mm -hmm. the perspective of where we're going to go next. We jump forward from yeah. from dis, uh, from Dress to Kill to Destroyer. And this is the first time that Kiss really has the, the co-writing. And I mean, it's obvious that's what the whole experiment was about. I mean, if you dig into James Campion, shout it out loud, the whole thing was a re, you know, evaluation of Kiss and pumping them up on steroids and taking them to the next step. But how many of those guys do you consider real co-writers? You know, on, on the, on that album when we get to, when we well, get to Destroyer? I, I honestly think that the real writer, the, well, the, the main writer's got to be Bob Ezrin. I mean, he's definitely a songwriter, was a songwriter long before Kiss came into the picture with him. I mean, he, I'm sure he helped with lots of other stuff from Alice Cooper and stuff like that too, right? So he, he's, he's definitely a songwriter. I mean, he's a great piano player too. So, I mean, he's definitely a, a writer in that manner. I mean, I, I mean, you can also discuss, uh, I forget what the guy's name is. I did the uh, King of the Nighttime World there, but I mean, I think that was more from a lyrical sense too. That he, he, he I remember hearing somewhere that he was in an airport doing something, and somebody asked him what he was doing. He said he was working on his pension or something, and he was writing lyrics for a Kiss song or something. So, um, yeah, I mean, when you look at co-writing, there's so many different things. You could be a co-writer as a musical writer, or a co-writer as just simply a lyrical writer, or both, right? So it depends, you know. On how you look at it, right? So, yeah. but an overall overall writer is Ezrin for sure. Sorry, yeah, that's Kim Fowley you're referring to. I mean, King of the Nighttime yeah. World. I don't really think counts because it was obviously the Hollywood Star song. You know, it's a cover. Yeah, that they've changed ever so slightly. Uh, I mean, if you go on YouTube and listen to the original version, it's got the same swagger as the version that Kiss ultimately does. Yeah, some of the lyrics are a little bit different. Obviously, the di uh, the delivery is different. But, you know, Fowley and, uh, is it Mark Antony uh, on there? I don't really count it, especially Fowley, because, um, you know, I don't, I, you know, my impression is is he was more of like a Gene Simmons that would buy a song and stick his name on it or maybe cha <laughs> change a few words. I know he did He did write. Lonnie, thoughts? Yeah, um, I think Ezrin really, you know, we've heard like the that original demo of Detroit Rock City, and you can really hear how Ezrin shaped those songs into what we know them as now. Um, and I, th I think Ezrin just took that raw material that, that Kiss had for the album and, and really formed it into 
what is you know one of their signature albums. So you know, Ezrin did and, and on Destroyer and Destroyer is one of my favorite albums, and I killed for that. That people say like, well, Destroyer isn't even even isn't even the best album released in '76, but. Um, Destroyers are one of my favorite albums, and you can hear Ezrin all over that album with like marks of between the piano and and you know you can you can hear the the hints of you know the, or the similarities between what he was doing with Alice Cooper and how Destroyer is is constructed. So um, Ezrin is you know one of my my favorite co-writers um, that Kiss ever worked with, and he's all he. He's all over that album, and it's and the the results are are fantastic in my opinion. Yeah, I'm shocked. Yeah, so- shocked he doesn't get a co-writing credit on uh, "God of Thunder." If you think of what the transformation of that song, I mean, yeah. you, ju- you just mentioned the transformation of Detroit Rock City. Look That's at the another great example. Yeah, look at the transformation of "God of Thunder." I mean, that is insanely transformed. Mm-hmm. Both of those songs are, when you listen to the original form are pretty nondescript, bland, underdeveloped idea pieces. Obviously, they're a starting point for further musical development. But, um, Ken, thoughts on Destroyer? Well, obviously, uh, Ezrin's uh, influences are all over are all over um, Destroyer. And, um, you know, he obviously put them in the right direction and, and, and inserted, came up with these little melodies, like the, that, the center the section the guitar solo kind of section of uh um, detroit rock city um i believe he came up with that all that stuff in his head he had this vision ahead of time what he was going to put in and and also the you know the stuff on on beth um i don't know if he's a he got credit on that one or not uh yeah did he yeah Yeah. so yeah he writing all that extra uh the or you know the orchestration parts of the songs and and so he, he, yeah, his hands are all over it uh, obviously he was a great contributor and molded those songs into even better versions of what they probably would have been without him um, so you know I'm good with you know Ezra was a great co-writer obviously he's very talented um, I, I like the fact that you know I, I know we passed this up um, but the, the Stanley Simmons co-writes um, to me, that's a co-write. That's a you have a song, right? You know, even if it's within the band, uh, those are the ones to me are when those two get together, they write something magical, in my opinion, and they uh, they should have done it a lot more. Yeah, I mean, when you get Stanley Simmons or Simmons Stanley Simstan, uh, that's the same as Perry and Tyler. Yeah, Lennon, McCartney. McCartney. I mean, the list goes on of the. The two uh, Jagger and Richards. Jagger I mean, and Richards. You know, there, there you go. Townsend and uh, himself. Seems um, to. <laughs> you know, it, it takes two people to really refine a song and make it perfect. I think on Destroyer, it's really interesting that probably the worst song on there doesn't have the uh, Ezra and co-write in that sweet pain. I mean, Gene has always said it's kind of not fully realized, but yeah, it's also kind of obvious that the quality of that one song is not on a par <clears throat> with the rest of the material. And well, maybe, the funny. But the funny thing is, though, it says on here, too, that it says that the besides Sweet Pain, God of Thunder, as you mentioned, is only a Stanley credited right. Not, and that's the only one out of them that Ezra doesn't have a hand on in the songwriting credits. And if you think about it, though, God of Thunder, how you were mentioning before, those changes to me have always been more a production 
change more than a songwriting change. I mean, the, the song musically has always been there. It's just that he decided that it was better for Gene to do it. He decided it was better to duck down to tempo a bit, make it heavier. That to me is more of a production change more than a songwriting change, right? I mean, he has he had the vision of seeing what it would have sounded like with Gene doing it in that context, right? But I mean, you know, that's my opinion. Yours might be different in that matter, right? But no, those you know. those are interesting technical nuances to bring into the discussion from a musician's point of view. Changing tempo, changing you know key, changing vocal delivery, you know, getting away from Paul Stanley's happy clappy maracas, you know, into Gene's <laughs> demonic growl. I mean, that that is not really writing the song. That's arranging, isn't it? So yeah, so yeah. I, I mean that that whole album, you know, that is still got. Ezra's paw prints on it, so I mean he's almost oh, yeah. not even a co-writer on this album. He's more of a fifth member of the band, isn't he? Absolutely, definitely. All right, so that and Stan Penridge, I guess we got to mention him for Beth because he's going to pop up again later as we yeah. continue down album by album. Yeah, I love Stan's stuff. But you know what? Also, Fowley is also credited on "Do You Love Me" as well, so we can't forget that, right? Yeah, I think that was the one he was in the airport writing his pension yeah. for, uh, right. rather yeah. than "King of the Nighttime World." And, and "Do You Love Me" is a great pop song. I, I, I mean, maybe that was just one that they said, "Hey, here's some ideas, refine it," you know, and again, reach out out loud. It's probably got the answer in there, which I don't have on the tip of my tongue to explain it. Yeah. All right, let's jump forward. Next album, Rock and Roll Over, we see some further co-writers coming in, and one I'm surprised wasn't involved in the band from a much earlier period, and apparently he was because uh, when he gave me an interview, he said he'd written all sorts of songs for the band that he wasn't credited for, but he's not here. Uh, and that Sean Delaney really shows mm -hmm. up on Rock and Roll Over, and it's his material that you know really get, is what makes me like this album so much is that mm -hmm. it, it changes their style they didn't just revert back to the pre-Destroyer sound. They had a new kind of street sound that fully invested, I guess, a lot of Sean's background, a kind of street tough, you know, smart ass as well. So take me, uh, Mr. Speed. Making Love. Yeah. And Making Love, making are, love. Are, are his three three co-writes on there. What do you guys think about Sean Delaney, Ken? Well, Sean Delaney was a great influence, you know, from the beginning. So, like you said, he's probably has uh, more uh, really con contributions as far as songwriting in the early uh, development of uh, early albums. So, but uh, songs like uh, "Take Me" uh, off of "Rock and Roll Over," which is just a great song, and um, <clears throat> "Mr. Speed," which is a you know a, a hidden kind of uh, underrated classic for Kiss. Uh, one of you know my favorite songs, uh, and, and then you got "Making Love." Uh, those are all great songs, and uh, you know I don't know how much he contributed to those, but I'm sure he uh, it, obviously he probably had a lot of contribution or came up with a riff or something to uh, get his name at least written on the uh, you know as one of the uh, writers of the yeah. of the songs. So, mm -hmm. Mark definitely. Well, I mean, definitely Sean Delaney is a huge influence. I mean, this is something, though, that I think that's very important to kind of think about in this grand scheme of the whole topic is that Sean Delaney, I think, is one of the best co-writers they've had. And for one probably very good reason, he was with the band from the beginning. He knew these guys 
all their little nuances and all their little technicalities and songwriting quirks and stuff like that. So as time went on, he knew what would work with who when he worked with them, whether it was Paul or whether it was Gene or even with Ace later on with Rocket Ride. Um, he he knew what they wanted and how the styles were. And quite frankly, I think that that's one of the things that was sorely missing with the later songwriters is that they just brought in people that were kind of cold, that didn't really know the band, didn't really know them as people, and they just wrote songs together. And it just showed that there wasn't that connection that they had like with Sean Delaney. I mean, he was knew them, like I said, and because of that, you know, that's always a strong, stronger connection. I mean, I think just thinking back really quickly, another great example of a great songwriting team Team, and they were also good friends too. Was Ozzy Osbourne and Lemmy Kilmister, and he, when they did the No More Tears album, some of Ozzy's greatest songs were with him. Mom, I'm coming home, stuff like that. I mean, he was he. They were good friends, and when you write a song with a friend, it's almost on a different level because you have that connection. You know what each other likes, and it just shows in the songwriting. Yeah, and that's like you say, very important. I mean, he was involved in their choreography, so he was working with them on a very physical, like kind of level of really getting deep into what worked with their characters as well. I mean, I just pulled up the interview I did with him, and it's uh, he he also alleges he co-wrote "Love Gun," "I Want You," and "Rock Bottom," amongst other things. But whether that's helping with arranging or or whatever, I mean, that's all open to interpretation. And obviously, he's no longer with us to you know really be able to put him under the flashlight, Lonnie. Yeah, you know, I bet I bet Sean was writing with them um, a lot from from the beginning when he first came in contact with the band, and by this point, I guess he finally had his stamp enough on these three tracks that um, they weren't going to be able to get away without giving him uh, some co-writing credit on. And it, it's surprising when you look ahead a little bit um, that you don't see Sean on as a co-writer on on Love Gun or you know albums that came afterwards and. Like Julian said, maybe he did have some influence on those songs, but maybe not, maybe not enough that the band felt like they had to give him a co-writing credit on them. So, I think that because Sean's name is on these three songs, I think Sean was not just involved, but I think he was heavily involved. That you know, maybe he did the majority of the writing on on those three tracks. You know, maybe maybe Paul had just a hand in it, and Sean did most most of the, the heavy lifting on those tracks that, that he finally got um, the credit he deserved on those. So Sean's, I mean, those those three songs are, I mean, if you just, if you're pole an average Kiss fan, those three songs are going to be in anybody's favorite Kiss tracks. Um, there's no question about it. So, you know, definitely a, a great co-writer and maybe an underutilized resource. Yeah, just just look at Mr. Speed. I mean, if Kiss Online does a poll of what rare gem do you want the band always, to dust off, you know it's going to be near a- the top, if not at the top of uh, that list for please. So, I mean, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of love for Sean's material. I mean, by 77, I mean, it's clear why he's not co-writing with the band as much because he's moved off into his own production world, Toby Toby Bue or Bo or whatever. Mm-hmm. That, that was working with Piper, Stars. I mean... He did the same thing with Stars that he'd done with Kiss. He was there with them from the get-go. I don't think he got quite as many co-writes, but he was certainly very involved as their uh, kind of mystical guru of you know rock and roll development camp. So, uh, <laughs> and and then you know rocking all over before we leave again. Here's Penridge. You know, so P 
Peter, obviously, the, the only way he can really dig up a song is to dig up a song from his past, because Baby Driver was pre-Kiss. I mean, that's Lip stuff revisited. But, you know, Penridge's stuff, you know, for me, it, it's it's a nice contrast to Gene and Paul's kind of straight-ahead rock and roll. It's a, l- a little bit more, I guess, rooted in the roots of rock and roll. So a little bit more kind of pure from that perspective. So, you know, what Kiss does with it and interprets it, I think for rock and roll over anyway, his co-writing certainly benefited the most when it was translated better than uh, uh, Beth, because obviously it gets to involve the rest of the band and better than what comes on Dynasty. Ken, did I leave you out or did you go first? I went first, I think. All right, let's move on then. <laughs> Told you, I'm losing my mind today. Love Gun. And I don't think this one... There's nothing on there. Well, uh, yeah, except for uh, Hooligan and, you know, Penridge. And again, you know, what I just said kind of response. Do you think Love Gun would have benefited from co-writers, either with Delaney or any of the people that they used? Was all that stuff that's just singularly credited to them of a good Was enough really? quality... Yeah, was it really? And, you know, does it feel like it's, uh, you know, should have been? Lonnie? Well, yeah, I think I think that I have I have a hard time. Maybe, maybe I'm not trying to be, you know, cynical or try to doubt, you know, what we've, <laughs> what's been given to us. But do you really, I don't know, do you really think Paul wrote I Steer Your Love all by himself or did somebody have a hand in it? You know, kind of like what I was going back to with Rock and Roll Over, you know, did or Love Gun, did, did Sean Delaney or, or did somebody, you know, of that ilk have their hand in it, but maybe not enough that Paul felt like I don't need to give you a co-write on that. Maybe you came up with this little idea for for the song, but not enough that that a that a co-write is, is deemed necessary on the album. So, what? um I have a hard I have a hard time with that. I think I think other people definitely had an influence with especially with everybody that was around the band at that point with as huge as the band was and everybody that that had their hand in the cookie jar at that point that that some of these songs were written solely and strictly by themselves. So you know, I maybe just not enough that, that the band didn't deem it necessary that a co write was, was worthy. Now wasn't uh that uh, it's kind of known that uh, Paul Stanley supposedly wrote that love gun. I think on an airplane on the way to. Yeah. I thought it was like on to way to J- Japan, and that he borrowed <clears throat> that song from. People are saying he borrowed that from some other song, uh, part of the song. I thought I remember. That. Well, just like everyone mm-hmm. else in the seventies, basically lifted. It's the hunter, yeah. and um, yeah. A lot of that song is lifted from The Hunter. So, I mean, there's no way Paul could say, well, I'd never heard of that because he's an Albert King fan. And Albert King had a hit with The Hunter. And Paul Stanley was a fan of Blue Share. And guess who else recorded that song? So it's an old old blues song that had been through the ringer. And, I mean, just like Led Zeppelin recorded three albums basically full of American blues musicians material and labeled it their own, didn't they? Yeah, Uh, I mean, yeah. But I mean, it's, honestly, the way I kind of look at this is kind of almost like the whole ghost session things. Because I mean, before for the longest time, everything was kept quiet, quiet about the ghost musicians, you know, playing for other people on albums. I mean, who's to say how many of these songs were actually written by themselves? I mean, you know, Paul Stanley swears up and down that he wrote that song on a plane, and then he went by himself to the studio and he demoed it, twenty-four track by himself in there. He's got somebody to drum it, and he just did everything else by himself. So I mean. 
you know, maybe he might have an argument to say that that song he had a, a main hand in, but I mean, really, who's to say that, you know, he didn't come with the Sean Delaney on the plane and go, hey, Sean, come here and help me with this song, right? Just like apparently he did the same thing with Ace and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he, apparently Ace was even complaining that Sean didn't help him more in in yeah. songwriting, that he was always helping Paul and those guys, right? So, I mean, I think that he had a lot more of a hand in this than we think. I think that the cover-up machine that Kiss is so good at was working in full force at that time. And Because, I mean, they went from three co-writes on Rock and Roll Over to, to none on Love Gun, which kind of makes you go, hmm, you know, uh, there's got to be somebody working in the background, and it's, and it's most likely would have been Sean. It's like that moment when the monkeys suddenly played, started playing their own instruments, right? So you mm. get to Love Gun, and all of a sudden they're writing their own songs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was uh, Sean Delaney who stole Booker T and the MGs for Love Gun. Who knows? Who cares? doesn't oh, matter. Yeah. <laughs> Anything's possible. I mean, look at all, all the years that it took for people to find out that uh, King of the Nighttime World was a cover. Oh, and yeah. They, I yeah. mean, generally the masses didn't know that for years. And a lot of the things about any of the songs, the majority of people still won't know, um, you know, it, it's just, or, or care about. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of splitting hairs getting in, into that. But, you know, for, for not writing with Ace Frehley, well, maybe, you know, Sean felt that Ace didn't need as much help as Paul did. How about that? I'm just going to throw one out there to the, the blue Kool-Aid drinkers. There you go, guys. One for you today. All right, let's move on. <laughs> now the hate mail. Start typing now, you son of a... All right. All right, so side four of Alive 2. And Sean we... returns. Sean's back. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think he actually did any active co-writing at that time. These are all songs that had already been written. It's just stuff that they grabbed and, you know. Well, is, wasn't there one of those books that they said that... Uh... That for Rocket Ride, Sean went over to Ace's place and they were demoing it up in his loft in one of his houses. I think it was in in New York when he was still living in that area. And that they they got a bunch of beer and that they they started writing and he that whole Rocket Ride chorus came out of Ace's mouth and Sean was like, yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. And they kind of wrote the whole song around that little vocal thing that Ace came up with. And it's in the book. I'm pretty sure it's in that on that that book that came out with all the songs. That they went through. Uh, I forget what it's called now. Behind, I have it in my behind the mask. Ken Sharp. Yeah, yeah, that's that one. Yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure that it's in there. A pretty detailed bit about that song in particular with Sean. So, but they didn't say one. Yeah. Well, who knows, right? I mean, it would have to have been before, obviously, this record came out. Right? I mean, but when was it before? before that whole tour who knows right yeah so so at this point we've got sean finally riding with ace as as you said so sean riding with ace is that better than sean riding with paul because for me rocket ride is one of my top songs in the catalog and i think i've said it many times the one song that i just think it is a crime they did not perform live with ace um you know does does Delaney benefit Ace more? Do you think, Ken? What's your thoughts on Alive Two? You know, I think so. Um, I think Ace does benefit a little more because some of his songs are, you know, maybe not fully realized sometimes. Um, and usually, Paul, when he writes or writes by himself, 
it's usually pretty much a complete song. It's not in his demos are almost always the same as his, you know, ones that end up on the albums. It's pretty much the same. Yeah. So whereas if you talk about Gene, his demos are <laughs> so they're piecemeal and they become one demo can become, you know, five songs. So uh so yeah, I think it, uh, Ace probably benefited a little bit more than uh, Paul would have. Lonnie, final thoughts on the live two. Yeah, I mean two two great tracks really rocket ride and all american man um again two tracks uh, that people clamor for if, if the band you know that the, they would love to hear the band play live well maybe not now they don't want to hear the band now play rocket ride but tommy know, tommy I, will do it no problem <laughs> <laughs> you, you really want your website just to go bad shit don't you kaboom <laughs> but but I heard them. They did that um, that hit and run tour in two thousand seven, and Kiss Online did like a poll, like what song do you want Kiss to do this summer? Like, and they had you know some tracks that they've never played, and All American Man won, and they played that song, and it was and it was it sounded really cool. So, and Rocket Ride's another song that that people love. I mean, it's it's a song Ace always does when he goes out on tour solo. So, um, just two great Kiss songs that that Sean has his stamp on. So. I mean, Sean is. If you're keeping a tally, Sean's running, running away with it. Almost for best Kiss co-writer at this point. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty close, tied with uh, Ezra, isn't he? Right. You know, whereas Ezra only did it for one album. Here is Sean on, you know, a couple albums. And look at the difference in quality between the songs that don't have his co-write credit, as particularly on the Live Two side four. I, I would say that the ones that lack him are certainly nowhere near as good as uh, the ones that do. But that's a matter of personal taste. I, I don't know if we want to go too far into the solo albums because they're not Kiss, you know, mm. songs. But, I mean, Sean's on Gene's album. You know, Ace is, well, Ace didn't need any real co-writers on there. I mean, he borrowed some ideas on his. Um, Blue Kool-Aid again. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Peter, yeah. well, Sean basically wrote Peter's album, a lot of it. So, um well, Peter is, just... is Penridge is on there the pretty much the whole thing. Yeah, Penridge and Delaney yeah. all through it. I mean, did, plus the covers. The, did, did Rich Weissman have anything to do with Jeans? I think it was a, he was just singing. The one he was that, singing but, back. Yeah, then. he, he, he didn't yeah, co-write yeah. with him at that point. They, yeah. ju they just met, but later on they come back. Wow, we can turn this into an ad for the Gene Ace Peter Paul book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, behave, <laughs> Jillian. And Paul Stanley, of course, uh, brings in Michael Jap, and that is a co-write that, I mean, he's three co-writes on there, um, you know, that, that later become a little bit more relevant in terms of a Kiss album. So, I, I mean, let's skip through into Dynasty, because we'll mm -hmm. come back to those guys who, for the solo albums. And again, Poncia. welcome to the club, Vinny Poncia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that this is one of the most more interesting co-writers, in my opinion, just strictly because this is an album that's either really frowned upon by KISS fans or loved by some KISS fans. And Vinnie Poncia, being the producer on it, also being a songwriter in his own right, had involvement in songs. Obviously, I was made for loving you, and he was involved at Sure Knows Something, and you know, dirty living and, you know, stuff like that. So he had a hand in the writing. So, you know, people kind of always look at that album with a certain, 
you know, favoritism or distaste. And then the fact that he actually comes back into play later on, much later on, actually, is why I think it's such an interesting thing for something that was so frowned upon or looked back at so ill. Why did they go back and use him later on? I mean, well, we'll get to that after, but you know, that's, I think that he's a decent writer and for the time when they needed help, maybe in this style of writing, I think that he definitely benefited them. Yeah. Lonnie. Yeah. Um, for what they were trying to do at that point, um, with I was made for loving you and sure know something and, and dirty living the three songs he has on there. Um, Two of those songs um, are, you know, in top of Kiss's catalog. I was made for loving you. Sure, know something. I mean, they're the they're the two singles off the album. Um, sure, know something is is kind of in the class as like of of like Mr. Speed. It's like one of those underground Kiss songs that that people love that doesn't get the appreciation that Kiss fans think it deserves. So I kind of kind of slot those two like in the same category so and then dirty living um it's a decent peter song really and you know and you know we all know that vinnie poncha was selected for the album because you know to keep peter happy at the time but um you know three really good tracks that he has his hands on um and maybe he had his hand on more in dynasty um but doesn't get the credit for it because um, you know you can hear his influence all over, all over the album. So, but three three great three great three great songs, and here keeping score. That's, that's three in his slot, and there's more to come. So. Yep. Ken, yeah, I agree. Uh, Poncia is really good. Obviously, he has a very good pop sensibility about him. If you you know look at his track record. Um, and coming up with those songs or working with those songs uh, on those songs with with either Paul or, or, or even um, uh, Peter Chris, obviously it was probably Dirty Living was a Chris Penridge probably completed song that Poncia had in, embellished, you know, uh, came up with some things to make it better. I'm sure. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, and actually, that that's Dirty Living is kind of a hidden gem for me, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I really, I really like that song. Um, maybe uh, the first time I heard it, I don't think I liked it the first time I heard it as much, but that's that's grown on me over the years, and I really like it yeah, when it comes up. As long as it just kind of grows on you. I didn't like yeah. it enough. Yeah. Like, really so, don't. so yeah, Pontia, um, yeah, and we're we're gonna see more of him, I think, coming up here too. Yeah, I like Dirty Living. I like the disco remix of five the nearly six minute version of that yeah. that song. But yeah. Vin, but Vinny did the demo session with. Uh, you know, Penridge and, and Peter in December 78 when they first demoed this song. Um, so he was there. So he's, you know, probably helping with the arranging. But mm-hmm. I always thought that, you know, it wasn't just about making Peter happy for this album. It was trying to ca- kind of replicate um, Ezrin, that you bring in a guy who's a musician because Vinny was a musician. Vinny was a writer. Vinny was everything. Vinny was an ex- is an extremely talented musician. So... And and with a catalog that includes like Melissa Manchester and Ringo Starr, I mean yeah. it, it goes further than just appeasing the kitty cat. So 
you know, he, he comes in and, and he's doing the same thing Ezra did. His hands are all over this album, I'm pretty sure, you know, with the exception of probably that one track from Gene that, you know, Howard Marks gets the the inane co-writing credit on. Uh, yeah. 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 It, yeah. It, and it definitely seems interesting that whenever Kiss wants to make a major shift in their style, they bring in that songwriter-producer, like the Destroyer, they brought in Ezra for this major shift, they brought in Vinnie Poncia, you know, and then when they wanted to make that big shift back to the whole, you know, we're heavy metal, hard, like, revenge, they brought back Ezrin back again, you know, to help with the writing, right? And with the whole production style. It just seems like whenever they make a major shift to something, they bring in that major kind of songwriter, producer with them. Yeah, and I don't consider Dynasty a major shift when you can you compare it to... Love Gun, sonically, they're very similar in kind of the level of the material and the sound, the overall sound of the band. There's a, a, a contrast between Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun. You know, one's way more polished, the other one's raw and rough and tough. And, you know, this one's very polished, but obviously coming off the solo albums, it was a major, you know, the return of Kiss for a reason. So let's talk about Desmond, mm-hmm. you know. I was made for loving you. And I, I think that benefits. I, I like that song. Always did from the first time I heard it. I didn't know anything about disco when I first heard it, of course. Um, but, you know, if you if you look at the history, Paul had a relationship with Desmond before they started writing together. Obviously, he was on the New York scene watching Desmond Child's band, you know, Desmond Child and Rouge, Rouge. In, the, in the club. So he'd had the girls on his solo album. So, there, you know, there's history there, you know, and, and maybe that's what works, that, you know, Desmond brings in something new. Poncia polishes it up because, I'm sorry, Paul probably needed quite a bit of help to write something different like that. Mm-hmm. Taking... Oh, no, he wrote it in five minutes, he says. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I just went down to the club and saw that it was 100, 160 beats, so boom, here we go. Okay. So this is the first introduction of Desmond. I mean, this is he's going to have more, obviously, like we're going to talk about more of uh, Vinnie Poncia, but any initial thoughts on Desmond Child? Ken? Uh, obviously, uh, as we see, not in just kiss, the Kiss world, but in in other things that uh, um, Desmond Child has been, you know, contributed to in, in rock uh, history here, or back in at least in the eighties, um, he's obviously very talented, and he probably came up with a lot of things in in that song. I'm guessing. Um, yeah, because that's that sounds so much different than anything Paul had ever written before. That it's just a stretch that I, he could have come up with that whole, the whole thing. Um, so, but uh, he might have come up with the melody, the initial melody. You know, I was made for loving you part. Um, but uh, I think he probably had a lot of help on that song. Yeah, go back and listen to the fight or some of the stuff off Rouge and stylistically, you know, where some of the elements in that song are probably coming from, Lonnie. Yeah, I think I think I was made for loving you is the is the perfect song to introduce Desmond Child into the Kiss world. I think it's you you couldn't pick a better song to to introduce him into it, and you know we'll, we'll see more to come with him. But um, yeah, I think his hands are obviously all over it, knowing his style and knowing like Ken said, like knowing Paul's style. Um, that I don't think Paul writes Love Gun and can as the I don't think the urban legend is really true that in five minutes he just sat down and wrote that and had a totally shift of style. So um, obviously I think 
I think Desmond's hands are all over it, as are Vinnie Poncia's. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think you write a song in five minutes with two co-writers. <laughs> but that's just me. Team effort. And, and just yeah. think, you know, what would happen if, you know, Desmond had been a member of a band who had actually made it. You know, he didn't make it. You know, mm -hmm. I think he's got one album, two albums of Rouge, and then there's uh, his Discipline <clears throat> album later in the 80s, and that's it for him. You know, very little mm -hmm. on his own. Mark, any final thoughts before we move on? Well, I mean, I think, like we said, he, he had a relationship with him when they first met, and he was he knew about him from the New York scene. But, I mean, you know, this whole thing about, uh, you know, him, Paul saying, you know, if you see him anywhere near the studio, get out a sniper and stuff. I, I think that that to me is just frankly sour grapes on Paul's part because I think that what really pissed off Paul is that, you know, he wrote all these songs. Like, there's eight songs I can think of that, that Desmond Child wrote with Kiss, okay? But, I mean, when you think of Desmond Child now, you think of, you know, You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer. You don't think of those other Kiss songs. I think that really pisses Paul off because those songs are much more memorable and are more remembered than anything that was written with him and Desmond Child, for the exception of maybe I was made for loving you. So I think that's why Paul's kind of all sour about it because, you know, it's like, where's my other hits, you know? So I, I think that, uh, you know, he's a great writer, Desmond Child. I mean, he has a track record to show it. I mean, look at all the other songs that they had him involved with on in just Kiss Alone. Like, I mean, if he was that bad a writer, you wouldn't have had him for like easily eight to 10 songs in your catalog, right? So, I mean, I think he's a good writer. I think for this album, it was a great introduction, just like Lonnie said, that, you know, this is a good song to introduce him with. And it, he went on to show his strength as a writer, maybe just, Paul Stanley wasn't the right guy to write huge hits with 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 him. Maybe he needed Bon Jovi to write and get big, bigger songs out of him. You know, there you go. Well, I think, um, sorry, Julian, but I think uh, Paul is the one that told Bon Jovi to to look up Desmond Child. Oh yeah, but I mean, even that, so, it's his it's his own fault. Yeah, yeah, that's and, and maybe that's where the sour grapes come in because yeah. you know people are talking about Desmond Child. They're talking about Bon Jovi. Well, who took Bon Jovi out on their first major tour, Kiss, and True. who really brought um, Desmond Child to prominence, Kiss, and who doesn't get mentioned in the equation, <laughs> Kiss. Yes. So you know, <laughs> right. can can I can I understand? You know, Paul sitting there, but I, but I, yeah. You know, all right, let's move on into Unmasked. And here's uh, Poncia again. And I think this is albums kind of indicative of someone who has too much of his hands in the pie because it's it's an album that, while very similar to Dynasty, has gone too pop. It's got it's swung a little bit too far away from the center. Um, and I think that the, the songs that don't have him as a co-writer are better than the ones that do because you know. Talk to me. It's not many that don't have him as a co-writer. Talk yeah, to me yeah, in two exactly. sides of the coin, you know, Ace's songs, you know, keep your hands off my ascot, Vinny. Uh, you know, <laughs> e everything else just seems here to overdose on the pop pretensions that they were going for, the sound. What do you guys think? take on this? Is it a step too far with Vinny? Was he given maybe too much latitude, or was the band just I, really yeah. going for that AOR audience too much? Mark? Uh, I think that it just really quickly, I think that the reason why they gave us so much is because, you know, because of I Was Made For Loving It was a huge number one hit all around the world. I'm sure the record label at that point was like, yay, you know, we have a huge number one hit, you know, because didn't Phonogram at that point pretty much take over as the major parent company at that point. So, of course, they wanted huge 
material and record sales and i'm sure they probably you know patted Vinny on the back and say listen if you can make a couple of more like songs like that on this next record we'd really appreciate it hence shandy you know which was then probably the next attempt at a huge hit which probably only worked in australia by the sounds of it but uh you know it's that's why i think they gave him free reign i think over this record i mean i really like naked city it's a great song and he was involved with that too right you know and uh but, you know, I think you're right, though, to a point. He did probably have a little too much control over the album at that point. But I think that's why it it happened, because of the success of the other song. And they saw dollar bills, probably, and thought that if we let him go more his way, maybe we'll see more of it. Well, Shandy was also a hit in Norway, number four. And that explains <laughs> why death metal became so popular there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't I, give us any more of that shit. <laughs> I agree with uh, with Mark on, on his observations of this. Um, and plus, you know, I think had Dynasty flopped, if that flopped, you know, Ponzi wouldn't have been the next producer um, had they gotten maybe no hit at all. I have a feeling mm-hmm. they would have went in another direction. Um, so, but since they thought, well, geez, you know, Kiss usually doesn't have songs that play on the radio. Not too often, up to that point, um, they thought, "Well, well, this one really did well. Let's let's keep him on. Maybe we can get some more hits on on AM radio." Um, so, I think that's what they were trying to do. And and it, yeah, like you said, Julian, it, it went you know a little bit too far. Swung the pendulum swung too far in one way. You know that gold single went to their head with Dynasty. You know that was only the second gold single that the band had had on the first one. Paul Stanley had had a part in. So. Um, you know, looking for more of those is where I see this album going and what they were trying to have their co-writer do. And, you know, why would they go back to Vinny if they're like, okay, well, this different style of music is working, Vinny, let's go with it. And, you know, our our demographic is changing. All those kiddies who are buying sponges are growing up, um, you know, so let's let's put some syrupy stuff out there that maybe their moms like, um, you know, so it, it, again, you know, I, I agree with everything everyone else said. And I think you bring up an excellent point with, with the gold record. And, uh, you know, it was the first gold record single that, that Paul was involved in. And they weren't about to repeat the formula. Well, Paul wasn't about to repeat the formula for how they got their first gold record single with Beth. So, you know, and, and, I, and Peter hints to it in his book that, you know, Paul was jealous that, that he wrote such a great song, we, but how much Peter had to do with Beth is a topic for another show. But I think that they saw that, and you know, Paul had a co-write on their big hit single, and you know, we're just going to throw him all in there. We're just going to throw all of our eggs in here to try to get another one like that. And you know, if Dynasty is what they call Super Kiss, well, this was like Super Kiss on steroids because it got even poppier, and it was. Just over, just way overdone with, with trying to get that that one hit again, and it flopped historically. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting. Dynasty has a gold single, but it's not a mega selling album. You know, I think it's only officially certified as platinum. I think it is double platinum, um, but that's not a mega album. No, not in that no. not in that period. So, yeah, not in that period. You know, a gold single did not equate to album sales. People did strictly just buy the single, rather than the whole album. So, you know, it it 
the experiment didn't work and and mass really kind of proves that in the u.s anyway i mean in other countries that were so desperate for something interesting perhaps it (laughs) it can explain why it was popular but all right music from the elder and i don't i'm not going to go into too much detail on this one as it'll wait for later for me but ezrin comes back and i think more interesting than ezrin on this is lou reed and the three songs that he's got to co-write on um you know marrying up that new york sensibility you know his dark lyrics who's got an echo whatever um you know it's it's a really weird combination and i didn't know enough about lou reed and velvet underground and all that but obviously that comes through ezrin ken thoughts on you know i guess the elder not just lou reed yeah well as you know the elders are in my opinion, a great album still, even with a different style um, in a different direction. Um, but yeah, Ezrin, again, uh, uh, had his you know hands all over that one too, of course. And, uh, you know, his influences on writing, I mean, he, you know, of course he wrote, you know, part of, uh, you know, the fanfare, you know, did that um, Just a Boy um other things, well, World Without Heroes, he's in, you know, a lot of it, and probably more than what, you know, we're looking at here. Uh, Escape of the Island. Um, I. And I, especially yep. I, um, that, which is a really, you know, one of the probably better songs on the album, uh, really. Um, it's an anthem. Um, so, yeah, he's he's all over that, and, you know, even, you know, uh, even besides Ezra and I, I'm surprised we have Carr, you know Eric Carr's name listed a couple of times on this uh, mm-hmm. album, and there are you know on a couple of really good songs there. I mean, Under the Rose has always been one of my favorites off of that album, and and uh, Carr seems to come up with some you know cool riffs, and I think he probably came up with that original <laughs> concept, and then Simmons, Gene Simmons added to that to to you know. Yeah, that, that's what my assumption is, is, that he basically came up with the idea, took it to them to finish, and that was his input. However, I was on, I think it was ASCAP or BMI, one of those two uh, publishing sites, and his credit had been removed from one of those songs. So I got to really? continue digging on that. Yeah, that happened years ago. That's um, interesting. Yeah, way, way back before I think Rockology <laughs> came out, Dial L for Love, which everyone kind of knew mm-hmm. he had written, he wasn't even credited on. Uh, so <laughs> got to look into that's that nice. one. But okay, back on topic, Lonnie. Um, you know, Ezrin obviously is all over the album. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but um, I think it's interesting that you get a Simmons Ezrin co-write with I. Um, usually, you know, Gene is, is solo, and Gene had everything that Gene contributed on. Well, there wasn't a there wasn't an Ezrin Simmons co-write on. On Destroyer, so usually, you know, Ezra was there with Stanley, so I think it's it's interesting that you get that, and the results are great. I mean, like Ken said, I is a very underrated, you know, one of those underrated Kiss songs. Again, it's another one of those songs that the fans clamor for all the time. So I, th- I think that's really interesting um, that they were able to come up like with an... It's like a... And it, it's interesting that it's a it's like a Kiss anthem song wasn't co-written by Paul Stanley, which is kind of odd too, because a lot of those <laughs> anthem-like Kiss songs are all, um, you know, Paul Stanley songs. So um, I think I think that's really interesting, also. And the oath. Um, I wonder how. And Julian probably knows more about how much he had to do with the oath. 
but two really great songs and i agree with kim too i i think i think that the older is a great album and it just gets flagged as oh it's this concept piece of shit album that kiss never wants to talk about kiss never plays anything off of but there's some really great tracks on there and there's some really heavy tracks on there the oath is really really heavy as a when you compare it especially when you compare it to what the band was putting out since love gun and even love gun isn't like we were talking about Love Gun a little bit ago. Love Gun isn't a really, really heavy Kiss record. If you, I mean, Nice to Your Love, I know it's is heavy, and Love Gun, the song is heavy. But you know, this Tomorrow and Tonight's really poppy. And you know, there's there's a lot of some love for got love for sales kind of. You know, it's a Gene song. It's really kind of poppy. And then it's just a heavier song that we have gotten from Kiss since since Love Gun. Um, so. It's an underrated album, and it's Ezrin's all over it, just like he was all over Destroyer. And but they were looking for, I guess, something something. Obviously, they were looking for something different out of Ezrin, but he does a great job again. And I put him back in the lead at this point for for best co-writer. Yeah, and you you raise a really interesting point about you know when you say that the oath is heavy. How much does Tony Powers have to do it? Well, it'll be in the book. Um, you know, obviously, just listen to it. Listen to the the lyrics. You, you know, it, it's obvious how much Tony Powers has to do with it because there are sections of that, particularly if you listen to Paul singing it, that kind of make it very obvious how much Tony had to do with it. Um, but what I think the oath kind of does, and it comes back to Ezrin and this whole thing, is if you remember, like, the Kiss Army newsletters that said that the, the band was going to record a really heavy album, this is actually a very heavy album. Listen to Mr. Blackwell. You know, listen to The Oath, mm. Under the Rose. It's a comparison to what they were doing the last two yeah. previous albums. Dark, Dark really Light. Heavy. It is yes. a heavy album. You know, yeah. sure, material-wise, you know, maybe it's, you know, lacking. You know, it's disconnected because the story just doesn't make sense. Uh you know, from a musical point of view, it's not like the wall where you have some sort of continuity going through and you feel like you're on a trip. Here, you actually feel like you're on a trip and don't know what the hell's going on. Uh, you know, where is the boy? It's like he's time warping all over the place. But, yeah. you know, and, and that's where Ezrin, I, I think, really brings it because he buys into the concept and he's able to really kind of put his songwriting into all of the concepts that we need a song about the boy. We need a song about the hero. We need a song about the chase, you know, escape from the island, running away, you know, so that's where his expertise really comes in. And then he's got the tools that they did with destroyer to augment all of that with the embellishments that make it, you know, cinematic as uh, I think Corky Stasiak, Stasiak, you know, often explains like the oral kind of side of kisses productions with Ezra and uh, storytelling. So, Ezrin, for me, hands down, you know, you know I think when uh, we look back through the catalog, Mark. Well, honestly, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying before. Change of topic, bring in a new producer guy. Just like I said before, they, they want a totally different direction, concept album. They bring in Bob Ezrin. Uh, 
far as Lou Reed goes, I am familiar a bit with his material and stuff like that. And Lou Reed is here strictly lyrically, as far as I'm concerned. Because from anything I've ever heard from his Velvet Underground to his solo stuff, lyrically it has a lot of similarity to it. I mean, you know, it certainly ain't for many melodies, because as far as I'm concerned, Lou Reed is just an atrocious singer. So I don't think he'd be contributing anything vocally to it. But it's definitely more of a... It's like a, the thing with Bob Dylan, when they were always talking about, you know, Gene writing a song with Bob Dylan. I couldn't imagine he would write anything musically or vocally with him because he's not a great singer either right it's just probably just lyrics right which which is more his standout thing so and we also touched upon the point about how you were saying you know the how it was interesting that simmons and ezrin wrote a song together i think that if you think about it from a songwriting production point of view the producer is going to go to the guy who has the strongest vision and work with him the most. I mean, wasn't it Gene Simmons who came up with this whole idea anyways, supposedly to write this whole concept story thing. So wouldn't the producer go and work with the guy who had the vision for it or wanted to go that direction? Producers usually cling to those people who have the, the, you know, the, the writing, who have the best grasp of that writing and usually work with them the most. I mean, I'm sure that there's many things we don't know about this record that will be revealed at a later point through your book. But at this point, from what I know, that's what how I would approach it. I mean, if Gene came up with the idea about the whole concept, then I'm sure Bob Ezrin would have said, okay, well, I'm going to be probably dealing more with him from a whole songwriting perspective. That's probably why, you know, he, he wrote I with him and stuff like that, you know. Um, Dark Light, for example, I mean, Lou Reed's on that as well. And again, I think that's strictly contributing to probably lyrics, I would think. You know, I mean, the, the lyrics for Dark Light initially were totally different from on the demo, right? So there's, there had to be a change somewhere. Was Lou Reed involved? I guess, again, that'll be something we'll learn from Come your on. book later on. Yeah, Dark Light. Does that sound like Lou Reed? Just Dark Light, the phrase. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally, yeah. the title. You know, yeah. that, that's straight yeah. out of Lou Reed, you know. Yeah. But I mean, you know, not without, you know, not trying to prod you for info. That's why I'm trying to keep it low key, right? So, you know, but uh, that's that's okay that's how... because Tim hasn't written the book yet, so uh, <laughs> I, I can't give you that much information. You got to remember this this book is by Tim, uh, with, with me on the side. So uh, he he's the keeper of the keys. He's the keeper of the oath. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's but that's what I think. I mean, obviously, Bob Ezrin got a lot of flack for this record. You know, because I think it's mainly the reason why he got the flack was because of the wall. If the wall was not written and he didn't do that record with them, then maybe the the, the outlook on this record might have been different. But because the wall was such a huge record and was so loved and is so looked at as the greatest, you know, concept record of all time. And this is a little controversy for me. I always said that I think the wall is not. I think Dark Side of the Moon kicks the wall's ass up and down every day, and uh, that's what, how I think. But uh, you know, but still, the wall is was his big you know pat on the back for himself, saying, "Look what I did with Floyd. I brought them back from the brink," and you know, it, it was such a huge record. And if that record wasn't made, I think people would have looked at the Elder a little differently. Yeah, I think it's uh, you know before we move on. Um... To, to the last two makeup albums, I guess, that we'll do in this episode. Um, you know, The Wall is an interesting creature because it's predominantly Roger Waters. 
You know, there's very little of David Gilmour in there, except for musically. I think he's only got, what was it, two or three songs on there. So yeah. he he'd presented the, uh, Roger had presented the band with several different concepts that they could go, and this was the one that was picked. But in Kiss, I don't think there's anyone who's an analog of Roger Waters on that level. None of them are on mm-hmm. the same level as any member in Pink Floyd. Um, so you... Ezrin's working with different raw material. And I love the comment that you guys have made about I, you know, the the unusual Simmons-Ezrin co-write. And just while you were talking about that, I, I, I don't think Ezrin had much to do with the writing of that song, to be honest. I think he's more in there because of the embellishments and the crafting of the arrangements than anything else. I think he gets his name on there strictly because of that. The whole song just strikes me as a Gene Simmons manifesto. Maybe with a word here or a word there changed by Bob, but I don't think that's a co-write in the in the traditional sense of you know Gene giving him the song saying, "Hey, what would you think about this?" I think it's more that he put so much work into crafting that song sonically and tying it in to the rest of the album that he gets a co-writing credit for really changing the nature of the song more so than you know obviously happens on a lot of things. But you know I don't have a definitive answer to that. That's just a gut feeling. Let's move into, you know, I guess which is a companion piece to The Elder because it comes at the end of The Elder period, um, and that's Kiss Killers. You know, and here we go with co-writers galore on those four new songs. And I, off the top of my head, we get the introduction of Adam Mitchell, mm-hmm. um, you know, on I'm a Legend Tonight, which to this day I still absolutely adore that song. You know, when I finally found Kiss Killers, and that's the first one to play, you know, it hit me because it was just like perfectly crafted pop. Was it as good as Rock and Roll Over? No, it's just, for me, it was just powerful pop perfection, you know, with Kiss performing it. So um, that remains a favorite. I mean, then we get into the Brian Adams, Michael Jap co right down on your knees. Um, Nowhere to Run doesn't need a co-writer, but uh, Adam Mitchell gets the... You know, the the second nod on Partners in Crime. So this is really Adam Mitchell being introduced, and he plays a big role in what will be a second episode for this topic. Uh, but initial thoughts on Adam Mitchell. Lonnie? Um, initial thoughts on Adam Mitchell. Um, I'm in total agreement with you on I'm a Legend tonight. It's fantastic. I was kind of in the same boat as you, like when I finally got my hands on on Killers. Um, I had to seek it out a little bit back in the day when I was collecting my back catalog of, of Kiss albums. And um, you put that, you put on I'm a Legend Tonight, and it's like, yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it just, it just hits you. You're like, why couldn't have I found this earlier? This is, this is awesome compared to some of the stuff that I was, you know, getting the back catalog of, you know, especially when I was cleaning up like the remnants of the back catalog that I still needed and, you're a little disappointed and you finally get your hands on this and you're like, you know, it's, it's fantastic. I, I, I really like his credit. I mean, I'm a legend tonight's great with him and partners in crime is a really good, is a really good track too. So I'm, I'm a big fan of all four of those songs and kind of four songs that I, that I wish that the band would play more, but, but, or at all for that matter. So, um, but no, I'm a legend tonight. Great song, great introduction for him. It's like perfect introduction for him, kind of like um, <clears throat> Desmond Child and 
I was made for Lebanon. Yeah, very very similar. I guess it's just a shame that when this came out in '82, wasn't released in America, and the 15 remaining European Kiss fans, you know, <laughs> who were left at that point, probably said, "Oh, that's really nice." Now play Love Gun, Ken. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mitchell. It seems to me, uh, and as we'll see on the, the next album uh, after this, is uh, Adam Mitchell. I think really gives it uh, the the heavier feel uh, on his songwriting. Um, maybe not partners in crime so much, but as we'll see on Creatures of the Night, uh, those songs that he worked with Paul Stanley on are very heavy. Um, um, obviously, very good. Uh, I'm a legend tonight. Yes, great song. Um, and, uh, we also see, you know, Michael Jap, who's, who's been involved a little bit too. And so he's, we still have that connection going on. Um, and then you have the, uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, well, there's nowhere to run. I mean, there's no co-write on that one. And I, I don't know if I be- <coughs> totally believe that or not. I love that song. That song's just a great song, but, uh, you know. But maybe it is. Maybe it's one of Paul's that, you know, like I said earlier, that he tends to, you know, finish off the full song um, and, and bring it in demo form, and it's usually about the same. Uh, the ones where I'm guessing where he's writing is when he's trying to create a demo or come up with a song. That's when he has his uh, co-writing comes in. But I think things that are he's already written and finished usually do not get a co-write, um, you know, I don't think there's much to change on his songs after they're done. Yep. Yeah. Well, just, and just for, uh, on my end here, I remember just, let me just preface this by saying that I really love killers. Um, when I first, one of my first albums I ever got when I was young was alive for my sister for Christmas. And when I got it, I started getting into my first wave of vinyl buying at that time. And killers was the second record I actually got because in Canada, they were importing it a lot into our record stores. And I remember seeing it a lot of times and I would walk by there and I see this really odd cover. With, and I remember Gene's hairdo was the thing that kind of made me go, what the hell is that? Like he had this really combed back hair. And I was like, and I kept looking at it all the time. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to go and get it. So I bought it. And I remember that my first reaction to it, because keep in mind, I was still kind of new to Kiss at that time, is the first four songs, those new ones that they wrote, I liked a hell of a lot better than the rest of the songs on there. This is really early on for me, right? So um, so I've always really liked those songs. I mean, I thought, you know, Nowhere to Run, I've always loved. Partners in Crime is a great song, you know. I mean, th- those four songs, I thought, for the pressure that they were under at that time to come up with songs at that point, I think they did a pretty good job. I mean, most people might have buckled under the stress. You know, they were going down, their, their prior record was garbage, and nobody was buying it, and, you know, they were, you know, seeing the guillotine over their heads. So sometimes people don't work well under those circumstances, and the fact that they did write, you know, decent songs is a tribute to them. And I think Adam Mitchell should get quite a, you know, credit for that, because... I think that he helped steer them at that point. And obviously in the next record, he had a hand in on a, one of the great songs that they wrote with him as well. And later on in the catalog as well, he had more input. So I think Adam Mitchell is a really good addition into the songwriting team for Kiss. And uh, yeah, I, I really like this record. And I think that, uh, you know, Adam Mitchell definitely was a benefit to them. What I think is interesting about Adam Mitchell is, again, he comes from 
a more pop background. I mean, uh, Olivia Newton-John, the Paupers, all, yeah. all that, all that stuff. I, I don't want to dig up his whole discography, but what what he then does is this is heavy stuff. I mean, we're talking about creatures now as well, um, creatures of the night specifically is heavy material but i think what what he said in an interview i did with him was that he and paul just hit it off and i think that's what's really apparent in a lot of this material is that it is obviously the work uh you wouldn't necessarily think it's like different people because you, you can't there aren't d disparate parts in it it's just stuff that works really well together and that's very obvious particularly when we get into the, the three songs he co-writes on creatures of the night so um i know he did a lot of writing with gene as well in this in this period when they're getting to know each other because he comes into the band through michael james jackson um as a fresh perspective and you know he's doing some experimental stuff with gene that doesn't get used at all but obviously his stuff with paul is working extremely well so I, what are the other two songs on creatures uh keep keep, keep me, me coming, coming. and danger is his favorites danger. well, well danger is not one of my favorites but you know it's it's not read my body bad <laughs> Lonnie um, Adam Mitchell on Creatures Creatures of the Night Keep Me Coming and Danger three heavy heavy Kiss songs three of the heavier songs in their three of the heavier songs in their catalog so um, you can you can really see that him and him and Paul are are getting along well and they're that they had that their direction was in a heavier album and a, and a heavier, heavier songs and, you know, continued in the direction that they started with. I'm a legend tonight off of killer. So, um, great collaboration in my opinion with, with, the two, with those three songs. And then, um, there's some other co-writes on there too, but we'll the, get into those in. Yeah, there, I mean, Michael Jap again comes back on Saint and Sinner and that's, you know, really interesting when you think about the songs that Michael co-wrote with Paul on his solo album. I think Saint and Sinner is another one of those extremely underrated gems. It's, you know, nearly a perfectly crafted yeah. song. Mm -hmm. It's it's one I would love for Gene to do live now. Um, it, you know, if I was to pick a, a deep cut, this would be amongst my list of, you know, ones particularly that Gene could could take, uh, you know, some of the load from Paul and, and be really interesting. But Let's get the elephant out of the room. Brian Adams and mm -hmm. Jim Valance. Yeah, I don't consider those co-writes in any way. I mean, that is you know King of the Nighttime World material that you know one's a, a cover, and the other yeah. is probably a cover too. I mean, War Machine. It's very difficult to really determine how much of that you know was the songs that Brian Adams submitted to Michael James Jackson for consideration. That Gene then probably changed a couple of words are they good songs without a doubt war machine is 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 one of the core songs of the catalog look how often it's been performed in recent years so you know that speaks volumes uh rock and roll hell well yeah okay it was <laughs> performed three songs as a song it's not a bad song is it a good kiss song no you know it's back on oh, turner overdrive all the yeah, way yeah it wasn't a kiss <laughs> no yeah Canadian band, right? BTO? Yeah, yep. yeah, BTO. Yeah, yeah. BTO. Well, I mean, you know what, though? I mean, speaking about War Machine, I mean, again, this is, again, the Kiss, you know, cover-up machine in full force. I mean, on, in that Unmasked book, Gene clearly says that War Machine was written because he found a little keyboard that he bought 
came home, was fiddling around with it, and the in- opening line for War Machine, he came up on his little keyboard. Now, is that true? Did, did he write the whole song based around a little keyboard? I can't imagine writing War Machine on a keyboard. It just doesn't strike me as something that you would, an instrument that you would write War Machine on. You know, did did uh, Adams and Valens have more of a hand in it? I would think so, because they're both good songwriters. You know, I can't imagine Brian Adams though writing a song like War Machine, but I mean, maybe back in the day he could have wrote it, right? But, uh, you know, there again, what's the truth here, you know? But You know, they're, they're obviously involved. Like, uh, again, that's a cover, you know, and Gene just put in a couple of lines and gave himself credit for it, you know? So... There you go. That's another typical Gene thing. Um, Adam Mitchell, I really like the songs he did in this. I mean, Creatures of the Night, I think, is a fantastic song. And I mean, not only did he have a hand in the writing, I mean, he even goes on to say that he actually played some of the guitar on the actual recording. So there you go. A songwriter that's actually performing on his song that he wrote and contributed, which is pretty cool. I mean, you don't see that happen too often. And, uh, you know, I I think that's an example of how much... Trust they had in him not only as a writer but even just as a musician to let him go and do that, right? Um, but I think what really helped Creatures of the Night overall, besides that they were strong songs and ones that Paul says is considerably better than Lick It Up, he says up and down he'll always take Creatures over Lick It Up. But I think the production is what really glued this whole album together, you know? And the mix that Bob Claremountain did was just fantastic with this. So, I mean, you know. I think Adam Mitchell did a great job writing the songs. They, obviously, they had a sort of vision of what they wanted. And, you know, at that point, they were probably better acquainted, Paul and Adam, at that point. So, once again, once you get to know people, you write better songs together, right? Yeah, so so here's an interesting thing. The uh, royalty splits on both of those Brian Adams songs. Let's put it this way. On Rock and Roll Hell, um, I don't have the numbers immediately to hand because I'm not that much of a loser. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But Rock and Roll Hell, if I recall, was closer to 10% for Gene. So that just indicates very little, you know, actually. And that's obvious to anyone who can go to YouTube and listen to the BTO version of the original song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on, On the other song, it's closer to a third. So... Yeah, that and, that speaks more of the evidence. Without no, we'll never know specifically who did what. But when you get down into the the legal and the the splits, that tells you what they agreed on. Uh, is that definitive? No, because there's also document out there that assigns Peter Chris fifty percent songwriting of you know songs that he clearly did not write. You know, uh-huh. so it, the the legal. But I think in this case, it probably paints a closer picture. Lonnie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, you know. People want to give Gene a lot of credit for War Machine and that, but you know you're not putting those other two guys' names on there um, unless they had a substantial amount of input into those, into those songs, into that song. Um, I mean, because we talked a little bit earlier about Sean Delaney helping out with the songs that he didn't get any co-writing co-writing credit for. So I think those guys had quite a bit of influence on that song, as much as you know Gene wants to say that he you know, wrote it on a keyboard or whatever, like Mark was saying. So, um, but Brian Adams and War Machine, you don't really put the two in the same room together, but, you know, I, obviously he had, he had a significant amount to do with it that they included him on the co-write, so. Yeah, and here's another thing. You don't put 
their names on a song in 1982 to sell albums because at that point oh, Brian, Ad- Brian Adams is a no one or, yeah. or or with a very small following because he's just starting his or you yeah know, and you had no idea what he would turn into at that point yeah so, so, it's so like I mean it's like, like oh look Brian Adams co-wrote with Jim didn't mean anything yeah so you know it's like Desmond Child again you know it's the the, the start of their you know obviously Jim goes on to to ruin Aerosmith's career um, and and Brian Adams becomes a legend. Um, Mark, would it, would that be great from the perspective of a Canadian that he's a Canadian music legend at this point? Yeah, yeah, he is. I mean, but also from a Canadian perspective, Jim Valance is also respected here because he guided Brian Adams in his early years and you know the early formative years as well, and was involved a lot with the songs that became popular. You know, cuts like a knife and all those songs that were really popular at the beginning. He had a big hand in too, so it wasn't just Brian. It was those two. They were really known as a team back then. You know. Yeah. All right. So, Ken, any uh, before I ignore you completely, sorry. Um, it's all right. No. You know, any of your thoughts on the Creatures of the Night material? And we've still got that one uh, co-writer to oh, talk yeah. about. Still, there, there's still one that elephant in the room you're not talking yeah, about. Yeah, another yeah, one. That, the other elephant. Um, yeah, the Adams and uh, Valance stuff. Um, I noticed, though, in, in the songwriting listing, uh, when you, you, they list the names, is Rock and Roll Health, of course, has Adams and Valance listed first before Simmons, but the War Machine is Simmons listed first before Adams and Valance. Um, and that's where I guess you were talking about the third uh, writing. And who knows, again, Simmons, you know, maybe coming up with that initial riff that you hear right at the beginning of the um, song that, uh, you know, on the, maybe like you said, a keyboard. Uh, Mark was saying uh, it's possible, I guess. Um, I could see it happening on the keyboard that, you know, the, hitting the keys in those, that fashion. But, uh, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, uh, the Stanley Mitchell stuff. Uh, again, that stuff is very, very heavy. Like Lonnie was saying, is some of the heavier stuff that they ever recorded. Um, so there's some good collaboration there. Too bad they didn't keep collaborating uh, down the road because uh, I think they could have come up with some you know pretty good songs yeah if you're talking about the ordering of the credits on the on my website is that incorrect <laughs> um, I did that deliberately you know on the album uh-huh. I, I was just okay. checking the album of course lists gene first on both of those I put the different order when I had the splits uh, just to be difficult um, <laughs> Okay. So, so that, well, I thought that was a, so. Right. So, if anyone out there has ever wondered why it's listed that way on Kiss Monsters, that was because I was being a dick. Oh, <laughs> no. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so. Let, let's. Uh, you know, we're getting towards the end of the show, so let's throw Vinny under the bus. Um, Vinny, at this point, is only a co-writer. He's nobody. He is one of many guitarists who are coming through the doors. And uh, there, there's actually, a, I should uh, try and find the link for it, but there's a, a great article at the moment um, about the people who tried out for KISS in the summer of 82 while they're recording. And we've actually found some people who did some recording for the band and didn't get paid and, you know, stuff like that. It's kind of interesting. I can't say their names. Uh, but Vinny is probably one of those people who did some recording for the band and didn't get paid and also did some writing. Vinny Vincent, what what do we say about him as a co-writer before he joins the band and is no longer a co-writer? Should I go first? 
jump in. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to say this. I know that he's such a huge figure in this kiss history here, history. That, uh, but I mean, you, one thing can't be disputed. He knows how to write a song. Let's just face it. He knows how to write good songs. He knows how to play guitar good when he wants to. I mean, especially when it comes to guitar solos, he can play tasteful stuff if he wants to. He doesn't have to do all that bumblebee garbage that he did later on. But, you know, he knows how to write a good song. It's obvious he can write good songs because not only did he write a couple of good ones for this album, but he wrote quite a few good ones for the next album. And he wrote quite, and he wrote a couple of really good ones for uh, an album that Lonnie holds close to his heart and probably carries with him everywhere he goes. Revenge. That's a a deep tease for next week. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, he's, he can write. I mean, why would you bring back, again, why would you bring back a person into the picture? if he wasn't a good writer and that you wouldn't get a good song from. I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking now strictly as well from a musician and a you know part-time record producer as well. I'm not going to involve myself with somebody who, A, has a reputation of being maybe a bit of a dick if I didn't know that he would deliver something that would be worth putting up with. You know what I mean? I mean, he can write. Obviously, they know that, and that's why they brought him back. And he wrote those three songs that he did on, you know, Creatures were just really, really well done. So so I, I think that he was worth bringing in there, and I think he's a good writer. Those three songs provide a real cluster of awesomeness on this album. I mean, I'm not a big fan of I Love It Loud. It's just been done to death for me. But back when I first heard it, I thought, oh, wow, yeah. this is insane. This is incredible. Not the drums and everything. It's just gotten old as I've gotten old. Um I still love you to this day. I've sung its praises many times. It's just an absolutely incredible power ballad. I mean, it's it's really absolutely amazing. And you know, you know, I'm sure I preferred the treatment that was done on MTV Unplugged with it because you know that's Paul Stanley at his height. But this, you know, I want to know exactly what Vinny did as part of the songwriting process for that song. I would love Paul to sit down and actually, you know, go more into it and try and recreate, you know, sitting either sitting with Vinny or passing papers back between dressing rooms or whatever. You know, how that song, I would just love to understand the genesis of that song from Vinny's perspective. Vinny just had incredible pop sensibilities. And everything that Vinny was good at is really illustrated on Killer. Because, again, that is one of my all-time favorite Kiss songs. Because the, the lyrics, you know, it takes the best of Gene's stupid little phrases but marries them together into something that really works well. So, you know, Vinny, absolutely incredible, uh, you know, at, at this time before he becomes a member of the band. Ken? Yeah, great cr- contributions by Vinny. I mean, I think uh, uh, Mark was saying that, you know, they, you know writing with a a person that you're having trouble with, you know, you may go ahead and do it, even though, uh, you know, because the song is going to be better anyway. Um, it's it's worth it. But uh, I don't think at this time they knew he was a dick, like you said. Um, <laughs> I think that was, that was going to come later on, probably uh, starting with around the Lick It Up period and starting where, with where the ego, ego started to grow. And, and that's, well, yeah. Once he knew that they needed him. Right, exactly. So, uh, you know, I'm a full member of the band now, but even though he didn't sign the contract. Um, uh, so, yeah, I love it loud. Um, I still love you. Great. And, um, sorry, killer. 
Killer, I, I just that's another hidden one for me, another hidden gem that I just think is a great song. Doesn't sound like anything that Gene Simmons would write, in my opinion. Um, not really, um, but it's, it's just a great song. Um, so yeah, down the road, he writes more great songs with them. Uh, obviously, he's a great songwriter. It's too bad that you know, just things didn't work out there because I think we would have had a lot more great music. I know we have, you know, Lick It Up and, and Revenge, um, but boy, there could be more beyond that that we would have would have had. In the mid-'80s, would have been a lot better. Uh, mm. on, on Just think, you know, Animal Eyes and, and uh, Crazy Nights and, and those, you know, the you know, asylum, even okay. I know, you went there, you didn't include asylum. That's a touchy subject. He, he, he saw me <laughs> waiting to pounce. Why didn't you? Say yeah, but even asylum, I mean, it, it could have been, you no, know, all, as, no, agreed, you said it was that great, benefited. yeah, it would have been even a better album than I, I believe than it is. So, um, it's near perfection, though, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you can't. You know, disregard his contributions, uh, at least on this album and uh, going into the future. Yep, and obviously his guitar playing throughout the album, a lot of it, you know, mm. really sets tone. But this is about songwriting today. All right, let's. Uh, we're going to break this up into a two-parter, you know, and uh, keep this to the makeup era. And in the next episode, sometime down the road, we will uh, revisit the rest of the albums from a songwriting perspective and you know try and talk about some of the guys who came into the band. But Let's go put you all on the spot and seventy three to eighty two. Who is the? There's no ties. Who is the best Kiss co-writer uh, outside of the band to come in? Um, and I'm going to throw down and start with, um, you know, Sean Delaney. More so than Bob for me, I think Sean's stuff is. You know, just it's all over the place working with different members through different times. It's, you know, not just being involved with the production. It's really helping them craft, you know, some very, very good songs, more so than some of the other people who we could easily pick. Ken. Um, I'm going to go with Ezrin. I'm still going to go with Ezrin for his, I mean, Destroyers considered one of the Kiss's greatest, you know, achievements and and Ezrin, you know, really did a lot on that to to make it what it is. And even even the elder too. Um all he did with that. So I'm gonna have to go with Ezrin. Um though Delaney I, I would say it would probably be a close second for me. Mark. Well I think for me hands down it's gonna be Sean Delaney, mainly because of what he did and also because of the fact that I think that he's done a lot more that we don't know about. So I think that whole period is such a great time, great songwriting. I think that he's done a lot more than we know about. So I think that he should be credited a lot more. So I say for sure, Sean Delaney. Nice. Lonnie. Um, I'm going with, with Bob Lesnar. Um, look at his Look at his contributions and look at his you know, look look at the look at the track record. Detroit Rock City, Shattered Out Loud, Great Expectations, Flaming Youth, Beth, Do You Love Me, The Oath, World Without Heroes, I. He has co-writes on all of those staple kiss songs. Um and shaped those songs into what like I, I was talking about earlier, Detroit Rock City, like that early demo. 
compared to the finished product, shaped one of the most classic Kiss songs into what we know it as today. So um, I have to go with Bob hands down um, for what he did as a songwriting aspect for the band. No doubt about it. No. You know, there's a tie, and I, I don't think there's any loser in this discussion no. because Ezrin or Delaney, you know, that's your classic Kiss era right there for the guys who really contributed to the band. And, I mean, Ezrin, you take Destroyer and Music from the Elder, regardless of commercial success, regardless of objective taste, what he did with the band on both of those albums. He basically did the same thing on two albums, um, but that's for another discussion. Um you know, he he just has his hands all over the band and really guides them in new directions. So, you know, Delaney, Ezrin, fantastic co-writers. Next time, as I said, we'll uh, talk about some of the other albums that come after 1982. So, any last thoughts? No. I thought you were going to talk about also the... Uh, <laughs> the future... I'm sorry. No, 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 no. The, 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 the future co-writer... The future co-writes, or, or who you'd like to have the uh, Kiss crossover with? Uh, you know, I I think we, that'll have to wait until the next episode because yeah. you know we, we've kind of dominated the time with uh, the history. So let's leave possible you know co-writers of the future to another episode. All yeah, right. I agree. All right, guys. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to us this week. Do check us out on Facebook or come over to the FAQ board and give your opinion of who you think the best KISS co-writer was in 73-82 period. Um, but for Ken, for Lonnie, Mark, and myself, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. See you. Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we broadcast today. We hope to see you again.